Well, good morning, New Life. All right, I know we got a picnic and you're pacing yourself, but let's try again. Good morning, New Life. That's good. That's excellent. We got a nice clearing of the middle here. So I don't know what that says about you guys in the middle, but uh, isn't that that wonderful? Can we give the the worship team a round of applause here? Thank you very much. They... um, you know, they, they practice middle of the week. They get here early and practice so that they can lead us into worship. They're not, they're not putting on a performance. They're not putting on a show. They are uh, doing something really special for us. They are creating an environment for that we can connect with Jesus. And I think that's really cool. And so I want to thank them and, and uh, pray for those Sunday school workers now. So, but uh, Proverbs 23.7 is, uh, is one of those famous Proverbs. It's is often quoted. It says that uh, as a man believes in himself or as a man believes of himself, so is he. And basically what it's saying is what we believe and, and how we perceive ourselves is always going to determine how we live. So for example, if you believe you are a victim, then you will live like one and you will find offense in every place you can and you believe you're powerless and it's not your fault. Uh, if you believe that you're a failure, then you're going to give up without even trying to, to put up any kind of a fight the moment there's any opposition. If you believe you're unwanted, then you're going to pull away and reject others before they have a chance to hurt you. If you believe you're incompetent, then you're going to give up before you even try. And if you believe you're better than everyone else and you're always right, then you're going to act proud and arrogant and put everyone else down. And if you believe you're alone, you will wall yourself off and isolate yourself, furthering that sense of being alone. What you believe determines how you live. So the last few weeks, we've been slowly moving through this prayer in, uh, in the book of Ephesians. It's the, the prayer that Paul's prayed for for this church. And we, we saw in our first week in this book that really this was a letter that was meant to be circular. It was meant to pass around from church to church to church. And so while he wrote this to the saints of Ephesus, he meant it to all the churches. And so that means it's applicable to you and I today. We could read this letter as if it was written to the saints of New Life Fellowship. And so this prayer that Paul was praying for them, for these Ephesians, is also applicable to you and I. And what his prayer basically came down to, that his desire was be that we would fully know God, that we would have this epic, intimate knowledge and connection with God, that we would have this complete experience with him in every way possible, that this God who's the father of, of glories, the, the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, we would be known to him and him to us. And Paul says it's possible because we have had and we're continuing to have this enlightenment, this, that the eyes of our heart have been opened up to, that the, the truth has been shone into our hearts. And so now that we can begin to know something. And, and this idea here is this know is to know in our minds, to know in our thinkings. And again, that's because what happens in our mind and what we think and what we believe determines how we live. So this truth that Paul was praying that we're going to come to understand is a truth that leads to transformation. And so we've had this phrase that we've been using, this, this truth that's trusted transforms. That's really what it's coming from, this idea in Proverbs 23, 7, that, that what you believe, what you're trusting in, the truth that you're trusting in will always transform how we live. And so Paul's basically in this prayer, he says there are three things that he prays that we would know. And basically, it comes down to these three things. What God has done, 
who we are to him and how we're going to live. That's basically what this prayer is trying to help us to understand. And so last week we looked at the idea of what God has done. And we saw that really the the hope of our calling, what God has done is really centered on Jesus Christ and the cross. You know, the reason that we can preach grace every week, week after week after week, and not lose balance, not ignore other parts of scripture, because grace is a person. Grace is the person of Jesus Christ. That's who it is. And that's who we're proclaiming. That's who we're preaching is Jesus Christ and the finished work of of Calvary, of what he's done on there. And so we saw that the cross is a place where we've been totally forgiven, washed clean, made pure, holy and blameless. And that was possible because the other thing we saw on the cross is that God did something to you, the old you. The old you was crucified with him. That old heart was taken away so you could get a new heart, a new spirit. You're a brand new person. This is a brand new Dan over there. I want you to get and meet her because she's awesome because of what God has done. And so that's what's happened. And then the third thing we saw is now Christ lives in us. And it's not up to me and my strength and my power, but Christ lives in us. That's what God has done. That's the hope of our calling. Well, this morning now, we want to look at who we are to him and the significance of all that. So we're going to read these two verses, Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18. And that's going to be the the text of of our study this morning. Paul here writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know with your minds what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm really excited about this morning. I'm really, really excited because I really hope that each and every one of us here will hear from you. That that you will be able to open up our minds and our hearts to your truth. The truth of what we mean to you and the difference that that makes in our lives. Let this be more than just an intellectual truth. Let this be a truth that we know with our minds, but we trust in and we get to experience in our hearts. I'm looking forward to what you're going to do, Lord Jesus. Be the teacher. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to focus on that one phrase at the end of verse 18, that that second part of the prayer that Paul's praying that we would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance that are in his saints. There's there's two really two possible ways to interpret this passage. The, The first is that Paul basically is praying that we would know how awesome, how incredible of an inheritance that awaits us. That he's praying that we would know that what we've been given, this incredible inheritance that awaits us. And, and that would be accurate. I mean, that's, he's talked about that. In fact, just a few verses earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about this great inheritance we have in him. And that we've been given a down payment on the inheritance. The down payment being the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a moment. If the down payment is the Holy Spirit, how big must be the inheritance? Because we didn't even get the full inheritance yet. We got the down payment, and that's God himself. I can't even imagine how much more there is. But there's more to come. And, and so we saw that, that really a big chunk of that more to come is a redeemed body, is, is a brand new body. That's the adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And I can't wait to be rid of this body that's breaking down, and got aches and pains and doesn't feel so good and, and apparently gets worse with age. Did anyone else know that? Nobody else told me that. And so we look forward to that one day. 
And, and there's many verses that speak to this. In, in 1 Peter 1, God talks about, through Peter, he talks about how we have this inheritance that was reserved for us in heaven, protected by God himself. And so there is this incredible inheritance that waits us. But I don't think that's what Paul's referring to in this passage. You see, the, the, if we study the grammar a little bit, the grammar is saying that there's another possible interpretation, another likely or possible interpretation, and that is the, it's God's inheritance. See, it's not our inheritance, it's God's inheritance. And God's inheritance here, it says, is who? It's you. It's his inheritance, which is in his saints. That, that blows my mind. I mean, have you ever kind of stopped to think, what did God get out of all this? Like, why did, why did God go to the cross? Like, why did he, why did he choose to, to give up everything, to suffer and, and go to that cross? What did he get? I mean, I know what I got out of it. I got forgiveness of sins. And that's, that's a lot of forgiveness right there. So I needed that. I got a new heart. I got a new life. I got righteousness. I got freedom. I got acceptance. I got love. I got relationship with the God. I got a whole new destiny. I got to escape the, the separation in the lake of fire so that I get to spend eternity with God. I know what I got out of the deal. But I mean, what did God get out of the deal? And the answer is you. Now, at first blush, it kind of sounds like, man, God got stiffed in that deal. Right? It's sort of like I come up to God and I say, God, that's a really nice vintage Ferrari you got there. I really like it. Let's, uh, let's trade. Right? You give me your vintage Ferrari and I, oh, I got keys to a 1978 lime green Ford Pinto. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, it's, it suffered a little damage. It got hit from behind, which caused it to explode because it had one of those exploding gas tanks. So it's, it's got some fire damage. But, but I really think it's, an, it's a great fixer-upper, and you could probably flip it. So what do you say? What do you say? Your Ferrari, my Pinto. That's not even close to really what, what's happened here, that he's given up everything just so that he could have us. And that, that's hard to accept. It's hard to, to wrap our minds around, especially if you've grown up with this idea that, that God really just puts up with you, that God just tolerates you, that he's not really, he doesn't really enjoy you or love you. He just kind of has, he's stuck with you because you're really no good and there's something flawed and there's something bad about you. And, and, and so that's typically how we see ourselves. And if you look at it that way, then yeah, God got nothing out of it. But that's not how God looks at us. In, um, in Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew's recorded for us some of the parables that Jesus spoke. Jesus would use these parables, he used these illustrations to kind of convey to us truth. And, and so he's just one parable in, in Matthew 13. He's, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. 
And he's trying to explain what the kingdom of heaven is. And so in Matthew 13 and verse 44, he says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Well, when you're trying to understand the parable, you need to understand who these characters are, what represents what in the parable, because it's an illustration. It's a metaphor of sorts. And so to help us understand the parable, we got to understand who the characters represent. So basically, there's a man, there's a treasure, and there's a field. And so how do we understand it? Well, I was growing up, I grew up learning that, well, the man's you and I, and the treasure's Jesus. And that we need to now give up everything, all of our wants, all of our desires, what we think, in order that we could then finally lay hold of Jesus, who is the treasure. Which makes sense, because is Jesus a treasure? Couple problems with this one. Number one, then what's the field? What, what did you give up to purchase to get Jesus? I don't know on that one. Here's the other problem, though. Who's doing all the work in the parable? The man is, which would be you. Well, think about your salvation. Did you do all the work? No. I think what Jesus is saying is that he's the man. He's the one that sold everything that he had. Why? Because there was this treasure in a field. He gave up everything, his own life. He or in order to purchase a field. What's the field? The field's the world. See, who did Jesus die for? The whole world. In order that in that world, that there would be a treasure. The saints, the ones who chose to place their faith in Jesus Christ, that he purchased the whole world that he might find the treasure, which is you and I. Now, for someone who struggles with shame, that's really hard to receive that I'm a treasure. So I began to justify that and spin it in my mind. I said, well, okay, I'm not sure I can fully buy into the idea that I'm a treasure worth all of what Jesus has. But you know what? That's okay because I'm just one of many Christians. I'm one of many believers. There are likely billions of believers. And so, okay, you know, put me alongside Billy Graham and, and put me alongside the Apostle Paul and Peter and others. And okay, then, then, I'm, then I got a chance, right? Then all together, collectively, we're getting closer to Jesus. But then Jesus busts that one up in the next verse. The next verse, he goes on to say this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding how many? One pearl of great value. He went and sold all that he had and bought it. So you and I, we have to get to a place where, and it's hard to really believe it, but it's what God says. It's his truth that you, the individual, are the treasure. That you, if you were the only person on the face of this earth, God still would have died on that cross, given up everything to have you because you're that valuable and important to him. I still don't get it. I still, I still wonder like, why though? Like, why would you do that, God? Because when you did that, I wasn't so good. 
Like, you didn't do that after I got my life sorted out. You didn't do that after I became a new creation. You did that when and while I was a sinner. You did that when and while I hated you. You did that and when, when I had no desire for you. You didn't care. See, what motivates God is way different than what motivates us often. Again, in, in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew records for us, it gives us some insight into what really motivated God. See, when I, when I first thought about, well, why would he ever do that? Like, was he drunk? Like, did he, did he bunk it, bump his head and have a concussion? He just wasn't making good choices? Was he, was he, you know, under stress? Did he lose a bet? Like, why did he do this? Well, in, in Matthew 9, Matthew records this for us. He says, Jesus is going through the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed, which literally means they were beating themselves up. They were running themselves down and they were dispirited, which means they'd given up. They'd lost hope. Literally, they'd thrown themselves to the ground. The image of that is the two-year-old temper tantrum who's just, uh, I'm done. Boom. That's what they've done. And so he saw this and he felt compassion because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Imagine then reading that this week, just I, I kind of try to imagine what was it like for Jesus to walk around this earth? To, to not just see the pain and the suffering and the sorrow, but to know what it was like before. See, I don't know what Eden was like. I don't know what perfection, all I know is a world full of sin and hurt and pain and, and curse, but Jesus knew. He remembered Eden. He remembered a world before sin and death. He, he knows what's possible. And so when he walked this earth and he saw the devastation, the pain, I mean, he saw people that were unprotected, exposed, vulnerable, and so much fear and insecurity. He saw people who were uncared for, nobody there to provide for them, no one there to look after them. He saw people who are easy targets to get picked off, sometimes one by one, sometimes in groups, but they were easy targets for the enemy. He saw people that were alone. Oh, they might've had all kinds of people around them, but alone nonetheless. They were lost without direction. They'd given up and were discouraged. That was the running down themselves. I mean, they were, they were beating themselves up with so much negative self-talk. What's the point? There's no hope for me. And so Jesus sees this. And then, then I imagine what it was like for Matthew to see this. Because we read this from Matthew's perspective. And so I kind of imagine Matthew is looking at Jesus while Jesus surveyed the crowd. And his first thought, or first what he saw on Jesus' face was the pain that Jesus must have felt. 
the sorrow he must have felt within him looking at all the hurting people out there. But it was a sorrow and a pain that was then quickly replaced with compassion. A compassion and a resolve, a determination, a strength that says, I am going to love these people. So that's what motivates God. It's not you. It's his love. That's what it was. So I want to pause here and I want to, I want to ponder this idea of love. I want to ponder what does it mean to love? What does love look like? And, and I thought about just reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great chapter on love, but then I remembered this isn't a wedding, so we're not allowed to read that passage, right? There's, there's some rules around that. Um, I'm kidding. But I have some statements on, on the series of slides here that, that I think will help us to understand what love is and also what it's not. The first statement that we've got here is that love is not weak, sentimental, or ignorant of what's happening. I really think we've sentimentalized love in our world, in our culture. I mean, you see it all the time. You, you hear it in the songs that we sing or on the radio. Um, you, you, you see it in the TV shows and in movies or in books that people read. Uh, you know, in, in the culture, we see it. We even use it in terms of how we talk about love. I fell in love with this person or I've fallen out of love with this person. And we, we sentimentalize it. We've made it a feeling. But it's way more than that. Love is the strongest force out there. It really is. Think about it this way. The strength it took for Jesus to stand with all those sinners when they were being attacked by the religious people of the day. When they were, you know, attacking the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and just coming down on them. In some cases, in many cases, for good reason. And yet Jesus, he was willing to stand with them in the face of that conflict. Or, or what about the strength it took for Jesus to just stay on that cross? To not, to not save himself, to not, not run away from the pain and the torture and the mocking and the abuse, but to actually remain on that cross so that you and I could be set free. You know, some people think that grace is sloppy and therefore this love is sloppy, that it, that it just doesn't care about other people and it ignores sin, which isn't the case. Because ignoring what is hurting another person is not love. You see, when it's not that the sin's the issue, it's what you're doing to yourself. That's what we're, that's what we're more interested in. And so that was the case with Jesus. <clears throat> so when that woman who's caught in adultery, and she's dragged before this crowd, this angry, perverse crowd that is wanting to stone her. I mean, think about that for a moment. This was like a sport to them. They actually looked forward to the day of chucking a rock, hoping that maybe their rock would be the one that ends that person's life. So you have this angry mob. And there's Jesus who protects her, who stands by her, 
who is the only one to condemn her because he's without sin, but he chooses not to. And he says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. We've, we've gone way past, oh, is, it, is he putting her, giving her commands and laws and so forth? He's protecting her because the sin that she was doing was only hurting herself. And so we confront sin, but it's not about that. Because here's the, the, next, the next slide. Love is always in action. It's always doing something to meet the needs of another. And it gives away with no expectation of a return. And that's what makes it the ultimate gamble. See, love is, love is there to meet the needs of another. It's not about what I get out of the deal. It's not about what, what, what comes back towards me. It is about giving. There's no, no intention of trying to get something back. Could be a thank you. Could be an acknowledgement of a particular response. It doesn't matter. In other words, love does not give back rubs so it can get sex back. That's not the point of it. Love is giving with no ulterior motive. The, the purpose and point of to love is the love itself. That's it. And so it's going to do what's in another person's best interest, even if it costs me something. And sometimes, and this is sometimes even the hardest thing to do, sometimes loving someone means doing nothing and standing by. That's so hard for us to just wait and do nothing. But you see, that's what the, the father did with the prodigal son, right? He didn't control the son. He didn't make him stay home. He didn't control his money. He gave him all the money to fund his rebellion. But I think he did that because the father knew the bigger picture. He knew that in doing so, he could win the heart of his son in the long term. This leads into our next slide. Love doesn't control the other. Never forces itself onto another. It will offer and then wait but it won't demand. It will not impose its will on another against their will. It doesn't manipulate or control another person's actions. It doesn't even keep a record of their wrongs to then use against them in order to control them. Because it's not about control. It's about freedom. Next slide. Love knows and understands the heart of the other person. This means that love looks beyond the external performance. It looks beyond the behavior and it looks at the heart. Remember what, what, what God said about David and when Samuel went to anoint him? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, he, you know, he had all the, Samuel goes there expecting and waiting to see, you know, who God has chosen to be the next king. And, and he sees all, you know, first he sees this big, strong, mighty man. And he's like, oh, God, you've chosen an excellent example. This has got to be the guy. He's the next king. You've outdone yourself. But then God says he's not the guy. Don't look at the outward appearance. Don't look at the performance. I look at the heart of man. That's what I'm after. And so he chose David, a man after God's own heart. And so what love does, love is, 
Love is looking at the heart of a person. That's what they're trying to, to get to know. And they're going to study that person. They're going to spend the time to get to know them. And, and in doing so, they're not out to condemn them. They're out to support them. And so that's going to take time. It's going to take effort. And it's going to leave you vulnerable to get to know the heart of another. And, you know, when I think about that one alone, just, just that one alone, that we, we look and, and judge someone by their heart, not by their actions. I think if we brought that into our marriages, just our marriages, into our families, what, what an enormous difference that would make. A spouse would treat spouse differently. No longer judging them based on their performance and their failures, but understanding their heart and understanding that God has given them a new heart, a pure heart. Next slide. Love makes it safe by offering protection. It offers to bear and hold up another in a difficult time. And it's always fighting for the other person. What that means is it doesn't, it doesn't expose someone in their vulnerabilities and in their failures and in their shame in order to embarrass them further. What, what it will do is it may confront, because again, love will confront at times, but it's in order to provide protection to help that person. That's what motivates them. And then it's going to come alongside them and hold them up and bear with them as they go through those difficult times. It's this idea that when a fight comes after you, I've got your back. I will stand beside you and I will fight for you. Even if at times it means to fight against you, but it's always to fight for you, to do what's in your best interest, even at my own cost. And so with that, love is fully committed it's unflinching, unchanging, unconditional, and unbreakable. It says, I'm all in with you. It's going to be patiently waiting, expecting the best, enduring the ups and downs, because love knows in the end it's going to be good. Love knows in the end it's worth it. Next slide, love is not ashamed or embarrassed by the other, ever. Love will risk its own reputation to stand next to another. Think about what Jesus did every time he hung out with the sinners and tax collectors. When he would go to their homes, when he would sit with them, he was basically saying, I align myself with you even at the cost of my, expect, my reputation. That's why the Pharisees would, would distance themselves. They would have no part with those sinners and tax collectors because they didn't want to let their reputation rub off on them. Jesus didn't care because their sinful choices didn't embarrass him. He was just there to love them. And so Jesus now says to us, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. There is nothing that you can do that will lead me or cause me to turn my back on you, to be embarrassed by you. 
I may not like all your choices and what you do, but I'll always like you. And I'll always stand with you, no matter what you've done. This, this I think, is portrayed by God in a, in a pretty unique way. One of the most common names for God in the Old Testament is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I, I always thought that was kind of interesting. Because what, basically what he's doing here is God is associating himself with these three characters. It, it's not that he's associating these three characters with him so much as he's associating himself with them. He's tying himself to these guys. And so let's take a look at who he's tying himself to. First to Abraham, the father of our faith. Well, what did Abraham do? He prostituted his wife, Sarah, twice, twice to protect himself and get rich off of it. Twice he did that. That's the father of our faith. Then you got Isaac, who played favorites with his kids. Pretty lousy father. And then you got Jacob, the deceiver, the schemer, the supplanter, the thief, the liar. This is the one that had that magical personality that everywhere he went, people wanted to kill him. Real special kind of guy, right? Because when, when you cheat and scheme people enough times, they don't like that, right? And so they wanted to kill him. His own brother wanted to kill him. That's the kind of magical effect that he had. And so God changes Jacob's name, in fact, to become Israel, one who prevails with God, with the strength of God. But look how God identifies himself. I'm the God of Abraham, that lousy husband. I'm the God of Isaac, that lousy father. And I'm the God, not of Israel. He didn't use the new name. I'm even the God of Jacob, that schemer, that liar, that cheat. That's who I am. I am happy to stand next to you and be with you. God is never embarrassed or ashamed of you. Never. The last statement, the last definition of love is probably the best. It's God is love. God's love. It's who he is. It's not, just, it's not just what he has. It's not just what he does. It's his very nature. Love is a person. Meaning you can't just go find this love anywhere. You can't go find it uh, in the corner store. You can't go find it on the corner of a street. You can't find it in a, online. You can't go find it anywhere you go except in one person and the person of Jesus Christ himself. That's where we find love. Our problem is the mistake we make is we look for that love in all the wrong places. We look for it in our spouse. We look for it in our kids. We look for it from our friends, from our, our church family maybe. We look for it from our job and in our skills and our talents and our abilities and our performance and our ministries. We look for love in all these different places, but you won't find it there. Now, please be clear, God will use those things. God, God will use our spouses. Like, I really believe that the number one person that's going to love Arla is Matt. But it's God through Matt. 
And so Matt's not the source of Arla's love. It's God using Matt. And so Arla doesn't look to Matt. She looks to God. That's where love is found, in the person of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 4 and verse 10, it says this, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. God's this love. And here's the difference that I think it will begin to make in our hearts. The big difference it begins to make in our, in our lives as we begin to understand the love of God. And please note, please hear this. Nobody here fully knows the love of God. Nobody does. So get that, that silly heretical idea that you've got it all figured out because you don't. You really don't. Because how does a finite mind understand an infinite love? You don't get it, right? So I can confidently say nobody here fully knows the love of God. There's more for us to understand and experience. But if there's one person that probably knew it better than most, I would say it was the Apostle John. Because for three and a half years, John lived with Jesus. He walked with Jesus in such an intimate way. And I think he understood it the best. Here's why I say that. You read the Gospel of John. And at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John refers to himself as who? As John. Because Marco, that's his name. Makes sense, right? So he's saying, John did this, John did that, and so forth. But by the end of the gospel, how does he refer to himself as? The one whom Jesus loves. That's a powerful statement there. I mean, think about it. Let's imagine John walked in today into this church, into New Life Fellowship, and, and we brought him up here and we say, introduce yourself to the crowd. Tell us about really what matters about you. Tell us one thing that's really important. I don't think he'd give us his resume. Like, I don't think he would begin with, well, I was one of the original disciples. In fact, of the 12, there were three special disciples, Peter, James, and John. And, and I saw Jesus do miracles, signs, and wonders. In fact, Jesus gave me the power to mir do miracles, signs, and wonders. And, and then when all the disciples scattered, I didn't. I was there at the cross. In fact, Jesus trusted me with looking after his own, his own mother. And then I became one of the original apostles and the second most prolific writer of the New Testament. All of that's true of him. But I don't think that's what really matters to him. You know how I think he would introduce himself as? Hi. I'm the one whom Jesus loves. That, that was so core and central to who he was, I believe. And, and when, with that core understanding, how do, you, how do you hurt a person? How do you hurt that man? Well, John, I, I thought you'd be bigger. I definitely thought you'd be better looking. And um, you know, you're the second most prolific writer. Well, second's just the first loser. And, and your writing style, my goodness, it was so circular. I mean, could you not write in a straight line like Paul? Like, what was, what was wrong with you? Like, we could insult him and mock him and put him down. And you know what I think his response would be? I'm sorry you feel that way, but I'm still the one 
whom Jesus loves. That's who I am. And you can't, you can't destroy that person. And I find so much great comfort in that truth. I really do. See, for me, when, when God, God brought me into ministry all those years ago, it, it was scary for me in some ways. Not, I mean, I, I, Jim was asking me about it earlier. I, I, it was an easy choice, but it was still a little scary because you have to understand, I went from being an engineer. That's how I was trained. And, and I went into engineering because that's how I'm wired. And if you don't know much about engineers, engineers are not people people. They're really not. I mean, we will, we will, you know, we'll send you to the moon and back, right? I mean, we will, we will take a, a pile of poop and get water out of it powered by squirrels or something. Like we can do incredible things as engineers, but we're not people people. And so God says, will you leave the safety of being an engineer? Of being an introverted engineer, which is even worse. It's like engineer squared, right? So, so will you leave that and go into a ministry, into a role where you're going to have to connect with people one-on-one, -on -one, where you're going to sit with people and, and deal with their struggles and their problems and then get up and preach my word? Would, will you do it? I said, well, what if I fail, Jesus? What if I blow it? He says, well, who are you? I'm, I'm the one whom Jesus loves. And then he says, and who am I? Well, you're the God of Ross. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. So here's my challenge to you this week. And it's, you don't have to only do it this week. Hopefully we do it every week. But here's, here's my challenge, specific challenge for you this week. Find some time. Carve out some time. And sit with God, sit with your heavenly father, sit with the father of glories, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Find some time this week to sit down with him and, and really speak to him, listen to him about how he feels about you. Listen to what his heart is towards you. Let him love you. See what he says to you. I want to close with one passage here. It's sort of a, a benediction, I guess, of sorts. It's Romans 8, 31 to 39. I'm going to read it from the Passion Translation. But it really conveys the heart that God has for you and why I think he's inviting us all this week in particular just to sit and soak in his love. The Passion Translation is a paraphrase here. So, but this is how one person interpreted it. So what does all this mean? If God's determined to stand with us, tell me, who could ever stand against us? For God has proved his love by giving us his greatest treasure, the gift of his son. And since God freely offered him up as a sacrifice for us all, he certainly won't withhold from us anything else he has to give. Who then would dare to accuse those whom God has chosen and loved to be his? God himself is the judge who has issued his final verdict over them. Not guilty. Who then is left to condemn us? Certainly not Jesus, the anointed one. 
for he gave his life for us. And even more than that, he has conquered death and is now risen, exalted and enthroned by God at his right hand. So how could he possibly condemn us since he is continually praying for our triumph? Who could ever separate us from the endless love of God's anointed one? Absolutely no one. For nothing in this universe has the power to diminish his love toward us. Troubles, pressures, and problems are unable to come between us and heaven's love. What about persecutions, deprivations, dangers, and even threats? No, for they are all impotent to hinder omnipotent love. Even though it is written all day long, we face death threats for your sake, God. We are considered to be nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. Yet even in the midst of all these things, we triumph over them. For God has made us to be more than conquerors. He has demonstrated love in our glorious victory over everything. So now I live with confidence that there is nothing in the universe with the power to separate us from God's love. I am convinced his love will triumph over death, Life's troubles, fallen angels, or dark rulers in the heavens. There is nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken his love. There is no power above us or beneath us. No power that could ever be found in the universe that can distance us from God's passionate love, which is lavished upon us through Jesus Christ, our Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible love. A love that isn't about whether we deserve it or not, because it's not the point. It's a love that you freely give, you freely bestow. A love that's safe. A love that protects. A love that cares for us. A love that accepts us. A love that's not embarrassed or ashamed of us, but stands with us, always doing what's in our best interest. We thank you for that, Jesus. I pray for each and every one of us this week that you will meet us in a special way and we will be blown away by that. And he may be even ready to come and share with one another what you've done. In your name we pray, amen.